Welcome to Many Happy Returns, where we aim to make you a better investor. I'm Roman. And I'm Michael. The Berkshire Hathaway Annual Meeting is often referred to as the Woodstock of Capitalism, where legendary investors Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger opine on the state of markets and investing. The 2022 meeting took place this weekend, with as many interesting nuggets of wisdom and controversy as ever. I want to know what we can learn from these two elder statesmen of investing and whether they still have their magic touch. And later, we answer the dumb question of the week. How accurate is the forward price-to-earnings ratio, given it relies on analyst forecasts? Okay, let's get into it. Warren Buffett is probably the most famous investor on the planet, and whenever he speaks, people tend to listen. A date in everyone's diary is the Berkshire Hathaway annual meeting, and that took place on Saturday. And Buffett and his partner Munger, Charlie Munger, sat there and sort of pronounced on the state of markets and the world. And it was pretty interesting. What did you make of it, Roman? Well, first of all, it's pretty difficult to, to actually listen to them because, you know, they're quite rambly. I mean, it is as if you've got your kind of great grandfather talking, but much more lucidly than I'd imagine my grandparents would speak about markets. They remind me of Statler and Waldorf from The Muppets sat up on the balcony just <laughs> criticising everyone below. But you're right, like they're so slow to speak now that I'm just so grateful for whoever invented the double speed playback option on video. <laughs> But, but always interesting. I mean, it's always fascinating to hear what they say, but also to see what they do. But I think I think many people think that you could become a successful investor by copying what they do. But I think that's probably a bad idea because clearly what they're running is an insurance company with billions to invest where they buy whole companies. That's not what we do. So it's worthwhile just saying that up front. So copying Warren and Charlie is not the way to success. I think that's probably a mistake. And it's also kind of impossible to do because they say the way they like to invest and buy companies is have companies approach them because they want to become part of Berkshire rather than going out and bidding left, right and centre on other companies. So, you know, we can't really do that. No one's approaching me for a buyout. Yeah, exactly. It's like the Borg in Star Trek. I don't know if you watch Star Trek, Michael, probably not. No. <laughs> but, but the idea is they assimilate other cultures. And, you know, just as they're about to assimilate you, they say, resistance is futile. I see Berkshire Hathaway a little bit like that. But it's got so many parts of its company now. You know, insurance is how it started, but now it's got all sorts of things under the Berkshire umbrella. I think the big components of their conglomerate are, yeah, like you say, the insurance, which is Geico, the railroad companies, and Apple is obviously a huge part of it now. They're a major shareholder in Apple. I just love their description of, of things like the railroad company. I just love looking at those maps of the US. I mean, it's exactly like a train set, but <laughs> I wonder if that's how Warren sees it. He said he sees Berkshire like a painting. That was his analogy he went for now. So people were saying, well, why do you still do this? And he was like, well, I love to sort of paint on this canvas and I have control and I can say, oh, I'll dabble a bit here. I'll paint over this bit I got wrong. I love that description. I love that metaphor. You can imagine him kind of beavering away on different bits of the portrait, just perfecting it. And then, of course, he has to hand it on. He sees himself as just a guardian of the overall painting right now. But clearly, he's thinking about succession. That's the hard thing, isn't it? So Buffett is 91, Charlie Munger is 98. So like a combined age of, what's that, 190? So, <laughs> I mean, it's incredible that they still want to do it at this stage. They must just love it. And they're so good at it. You know, I think, I think they still haven't lost their edge in terms of finding things which are kind of consistent with their method of investing, which is purely fundamental based. So I guess the big story is over the last few years, they've been sitting on an ever-growing cash pile, finding it difficult to find companies they want to invest in, or at least at the right price. But that's sort of turned around now. So in the first quarter, they have started to spend 
So their cash pile, they ran it down from $147 billion to 106 billion, spent 51 billion on stock purchases. That's quite a turnaround. But they always want to keep some cash because of course, you know, the insurance company needs that cash in case there are claims. If something big happens, they'll be on the hook to pay out to their customers. So I think it's certainly smaller, but there are certain limits as to how small it can go. So I think people kind of obsess about the size of this cash pile because they think that there's no decent deals out there. But in fact, it simply always has to exist. That's true, but they have changed from a net seller of stocks a year ago to now a net buyer in a big way. Because clearly, you know, valuations matter to them. They keep their eye on targets that they want to acquire. And when the price comes down close to their fundamental value, you know, they buy the company and sometimes the whole company. Yeah, so they're buying out Allegheny, which is another conglomerate, primarily insurance-based, but with some other industrial companies in there. It seems to be a good fit for Berkshire. And lots of energy companies, which is kind of interesting as well. So, you know, they don't really care about ESG credentials. They just see value. It was interesting. There was a shareholder proposal to try and make Berkshire more transparent when it comes to ESG, so the environment and climate, and they're reporting on how to get to net zero, and it was defeated quite comfortably. <laughs> I don't think Charlie and Warren are going to countenance that. I think that'll probably change that. I mean, if it changes hands, then I suspect the new management will probably be maybe a little bit more ESG friendly. So they've got huge investments in Occidental, which is an oil company, and they've built up a big stake in Chevron, another oil company. So, you, you know, how ESG can you be when you're investing in those companies? Yeah, maybe they'll divest, though. You never know. I mean, they don't necessarily have to keep those companies once, once someone else takes over. But certainly for the moment, they just don't care about that. It's purely based on, you know, where they see future value. And these are companies which, of course, are in an industry which is essentially dying. So the fact that they've chosen to invest in those right now is really interesting. I mean, there are many other industries which have been in that situation. So, for example, you know, if you were selling carriages to go behind a horse in the 1900s, that wasn't a great investment. But things like tobacco, where in developed markets, sales have gone down, but in emerging markets, they're still pretty brisk. Those are a set of companies and industry which has still been very profitable, even though it's effectively become unmarketable, its products in the West. So I think, I think what they clearly see is that, you know, the kind of twilight years of energy will be very profitable as we ha undergo this kind of transition. And clearly they think Chevron and Occidental are well-placed to do that. I mean, at the moment, obviously, we're in a commodity crunch, if you want to call it that. So it doesn't look too silly to be going into those companies from a purely investment point of view. But their investments usually are long-term. So it won't be tactical. I think what they'll be looking at is the prices now. And I'm surprised they did it now because those companies have actually rallied quite a bit. So, you know, they're not getting an incredibly cheap price for those energy companies. If you look at which sectors have actually rallied the most year to date, energy comes out on top because of the price of energy, clearly. And I think what was interesting in terms of the state of the market and Buffett investing in Occidental, say, he said he was amazed that he was able to buy 14% of this large oil company in just two weeks. He said he usually wouldn't be able to buy such a big stake so quickly. And that's indicative of the fact there's a lot of traders in the market rather than long-term investors. Yeah. So I, th I think, you know, the liquidity that we see at the moment is still pretty brisk. And that's what let him buy so many stocks. It's interesting, the performance of Berkshire as a whole, 
their first quarter earnings did fall by quite a lot. But that was really due to, yeah, like you say, the stock prices of the companies they own being marked down in value, which has a kind of paper effect on them. It doesn't affect the underlying business. If you look at the underlying operating earnings, they're basically steady at just over $7 billion, which is the same as last year. And a lot of the companies are real cash cows, as they're called, you know, where, for example, the railroad company is the one which has generated huge dividends for the overall company. And the really boring things like Seize Candy, which really started them off a while back, that's generated a lot of income, which they then reinvested in other businesses. So this is how they kind of operate the whole kind of conglomerate. It's interesting, isn't it? That people call the Berkshire Hathaway shareholder meeting the Woodstock of capitalism, which seems like such a weird misnomer. Because, <laughs> you know, when I think of Woodstock, I think Jimi Hendrix playing a flaming guitar with his teeth. I don't think Charlie Munger eating peanut brittle on stage. <laughs> <laughs> And Warren Buffett sipping his Diet Coke. Like, this isn't Woodstock. It's like shilling diabetes, somebody said. I thought that was a great way of putting it. Yeah, someone said, um, how dare Warren Buffett be slagging off Bitcoin when he's just shilling diabetes on stage? (laughs) But like you say, he doesn't really judge investments. He just looks at the money, doesn't he? If it's oil... If it's sugar water with his Coke investment, he doesn't really seem to care. Because what they were doing in previous years was to buy back shares of their own company. So they were buying back Berkshire shares. They haven't done that so much this year because they clearly see value elsewhere. But if their price is depressed, the way they describe it is imagine you had a company of three people and somebody wanted to buy out your shares. Well, if you think the company's cheap, you'd be willing to sell them to him. But if you think the company's expensive, then you're actually reducing the value of the company. So the fact that they've switched from buying back their own shares to buying shares in other companies is actually interesting. Yeah, definitely. The fact they were buying their own shares over the last couple of years basically tells me they thought that was the only value in the market. I think if you look at the underlying core businesses of Berkshire, the railroad business, the utilities, the manufacturing companies they own, they've all posted pretty good profits and are still growing, whereas they had real trouble at the insurance company, which is underperforming some of its competitors. So that's really, I think, if you're a long-term Berkshire shareholder, the question is, can the insurance company sort of turn itself around? It's, it's a kind of an unpredictable business in the sense that you've got a steady stream of cash flows coming in from people paying premium, but then occasionally you get absolutely get whacked when there's a big natural disaster. So that is, by its nature, unpredictable. Clearly, they price the premium very cleverly so that over the long term, they'll clearly make more profit than they have to pay out, significantly more. But, you know, there can be these kind of dry periods. It's a spiky business, isn't it? Spiky. But if you've got the cash juggernaut, which is Berkshire Hathaway, you can you can kind of ride out the blips. Yeah, and I think the overall picture is, over the last year at least, Berkshire's been outperforming the broad market. So just in 2022, it's up around 7.5%. And that's, you know, against a fall of 13% in the S&P 500. So maybe their time has come, you know. Yeah, occasionally they win really big. And there hasn't been a big win for a very long time. If you actually plot the outperformance of Berkshire since it was first created, the really big outperformance years were early on. And then gradually they tailed away as the size of the fund got bigger and bigger. Because it came to the point where, you know, they couldn't buy companies because they were simply too big. So if you can't buy growth companies, if you can only buy mega caps, then that kind of limits the growth long term. I think that's why they really struggled recently. Yeah, but they've been around a long time, like you say, and have grown hugely. My favourite piece of trivia about Berkshire Hathaway is they could decline 99.3% in terms of stock price and still have outperformed the S&P 500 since their founding in 1965. That's just incredible to me. 
Yeah, and the story of that poor partner who actually had to sell his Berkshire shares, I think it was around 1970, in the 1970s. What's his name? Rick Guerin was the guy's name, who nobody remembers. Oh, I'm surprised you knew it. I thought it would be like the third person on the moon mission, Armstrong, Buzz, and <laughs> no one knows the other guy. <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately, Rick didn't make it because you know he had a leverage position and he got wiped out. And to cover his margin call, he sold his Berkshire shares, I think for around $40 each. And now it's like $400,000 each. So whoops. But I think it's a kind of cautionary tale about leverage, which is interesting there. It's interesting you mention leverage because Buffett and Munger had quite a lot to say on the state of the markets at the moment and how they see it as a gambling parlour was the term I think Warren Buffett used. Yeah, I love, I love those quotes. So particularly Robin Hood. I mean, if you look at the Robin Hood results compared to last year, the equity profit is down 75%, which must be related to the equity volume. And lots of new money which had come into these accounts, the small accounts, those have actually essentially become idle because people, I think, are just kind of stepping back. They got burnt. They bought lots of growthy type stocks. And, you know, those have really been hammered. Maybe they need the money for, you know, cost of living going up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I think it's been very difficult for a lot of people, particularly small investors who just thought they could make huge profits, who were kind of tempted into the market as a gambling exercise. Whereas we know that the best way to have many happy returns is to think of the long term game, like Charlie and, and Warren. Yeah, that's the thing I always find amazing about them, to be able to do it for so long. Like there's so many landmines you can step on along the way things that look great like they avoided the dot-com bubble they didn't get drawn in by the hype and all those kind of examples over the years and they've just stuck to their core beliefs and their core competencies and it's worked for them for example in the dot-com bubble you know they didn't get drawn in they just stuck to their guns they said it was crazy they underperformed and took a lot of flack during the period when they were underperforming hugely But then, you know, eventually they were vindicated, as they have been time and time again. And I guess we've seen something quite similar over the last couple of years in the Pandemania rally. It kind of was a dot-com bubble 2.0, wasn't it? With all these small cap growth companies going up by a ridiculous margin. Yeah, it it was a mania and valuations just went out of the window. And when people say valuation doesn't matter, of course, that's when valuation matters most of all. But clearly, they've stuck to their guns, like you said. I think their point, which is that if you have to make a prediction, then it's not a good investment. They actually put it really well. They said, we haven't the faintest idea what the stock market's going to do when it opens on Monday. I don't think we've ever made a decision where either one of us has either said or been thinking we should buy or sell based on what the market's going to do, or for that matter, what the economy is going to do. We don't know. Yeah, they're just looking for companies that they believe in regardless of where the economy goes or when it turns around. But having said that, they actually do create forecasting models in the sense that they have a discounted cash flow model, which tells them the value of the stock based on their assumptions about future growth. So I think it's a little bit disingenuous when they say that they don't know what the market's going to do. But if you think about the companies they're investing in, they tend to have more predictable cash flows than the growth companies, right? Yeah, like that rail company, you know, it's got steady cash flows which go into the future and which grow presumably steadily into the future. So that's kind of ideal cash flow generating asset, which they absolutely love. It was interesting. Well, like that quote you just referenced was in response to one of the audience members asking them, like, how are you so good at market timing? And Buffett basically laughed at us says, we don't time the markets and I'm terrible at market timing. He says, why didn't I buy loads of stock in the lows of March 2020? That was a big mistake. <laughs> I like it when he says, uh, price is what you pay, value is what you get. 
So he knows what the value of the company is because he's worked it out, or at least he's got his own theory about it. And if Mr. Market's willing to sell it to you for less than that, then woohoo. That's the kind of period where he really fills his boots and buys lots of stock. And it was interesting that they have made a few sort of opportunistic moves, which you don't usually associate with Warren Buffett, but sometimes he strays from his strategy. So he's doing what's called a merger arbitrage on Microsoft's buyout of Activision, where for whatever reason, he thinks it's almost certain to go through. I don't know how he knows that. (laughs) It is a bit suspicious, isn't it? (laughs) Well... I wouldn't say suspicious. I mean, I think the story here is that someone who works at Berkshire, not Warren Buffett, bought a lot of Activism Blizzard stock before the takeover was announced with, as they've been so clear to say, no prior knowledge that this takeover was going to happen. But the thing that's happened since then is even after the takeover was announced, Warren Buffett himself has bought a lot of stock because he thinks the takeover will go through and therefore he will make a small profit when the stock price rises to the buyout price. Yeah, I think, I think look, he does make these opportunistic uh, purchases. I mean, sometimes he gets it wrong. You know, for example, a Heinz deal, he repeatedly said he overpaid for Heinz. And, you know, there have been other examples like the airlines he bought and then quickly sold. So, you know, clearly they got really badly affected by the pandemic. But at least he always has a reason. You know, he has a documented reason and he has an opinion about what a company's worth. The airline ones was an interesting one because, you know, he sold them basically at their lows in the pandemic. And everyone's like, why did you sell them? Why didn't you just hold it? And he said, well, we're Berkshire Hathaway. If we hold a massive slug of these airlines, they're not going to be bailed out because governments will say, go and get money from Berkshire. When you were saying earlier, we can't do what Berkshire's doing, sometimes it works against them. Yeah, it's interesting they haven't got more involved in politics because I think they have got so much sway. If you just look at their suite of companies and how many people they employ, it's huge, absolutely huge. So it's not just things like that rail company. There are things like solar projects. There's this incredible video about one of their solar projects, which just shows just one of the installations in the Midwest. And it's absolutely huge. And you just think about the infrastructure that went behind that, you know, the amount of contractors who worked on the actual building of the site. And then you've got the people who maintain it and the people who market it. You know, so it employs an army of people. So I think they must hold a lot of political sway. You know, if Berkshire comes into town and says, look, we'd like to do this or that, you bet people listen. So I'm surprised they don't use that more. Maybe they'll they'll do that more in future. I think a lot of their power or their PR power might dwindle when Warren eventually passes away, though. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of unthinkable, really, isn't it? I can't imagine a world without Warren and Charlie, but uh, I suppose you know, we better get used to that idea. But it's interesting, the succession plan, you know, they do have new people coming in which are going to take over from them, where they've said very nice things about them. But it's notable that, you know, we didn't really hear much from them during this meeting of Berkshire Hathaway. I'm sure they're brilliant managers, but they don't have the X factor that Warren and Charlie have. And this is always the trouble with active management, which is people have finite lifetimes. By the time you realise they're a good manager, (laughs) they've either moved on to another fund or, you know, bad things happen. You know, if, if you depend on one person, they can pass away, they can get ill. So as much as I like Charlie and Warren, I think this whole kind of star manager culture is a toxic thing. I mean, it's maybe a little unfair to just describe them as active managers. They are running a business, albeit a conglomerate, which is just sort of almost a holding company for lots of other businesses. Yeah, I guess that's true. But people do see it as a kind of investment company still. Yeah. And it is a bit of a hybrid. I mean, there's nothing really like it anywhere else. I mean, it's really interesting, their corporate culture, which they talk about a lot, which is very, very hands-off. So I think they said, you know, 
the headcount at head office where they actually work, it's like 25 people or something, just <laughs> a few really key staff and administrators. And then they basically just say to the businesses that they own, get on with it. They don't even have to file quarterly reports and stuff to head office. They really do trust them. And the managers are key. You know, it's really important when you see the relationship between Charlie and Warren and the managers, it's clearly pretty close. And so they have to like someone in order to be able to trust them. But like you say, once that trust is established, it's very hands off. Yeah, there isn't really anything else like that. And there probably never will be again, because it's incredibly hard to build up a company like that now in the corporate culture in America. The things I often like in the Berkshire meetings is they're not afraid to pronounce on things which they would never invest in, like cryptocurrency. Like Buffett hates it, but Munger really hates it. And Munger speaks his mind, right? He doesn't hold back. Yeah. So he says, <laughs> I love some of these quotes. In my life, I try to avoid things that are stupid and evil because it makes me look bad. And Bitcoin does all three. <laughs> yeah, he said, in the first place, it's stupid because it's still likely to go to zero. It's evil because it undermines the Federal Reserve System. And third, it makes us look foolish compared to the communist leader in China who was smart enough to ban Bitcoin. But look, you know, these are fundamental investors. What they like is a thing which generates cash flows. And Bitcoin doesn't do that. They've never liked gold for that reason as well. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm with them with that. You know, I, I just think that if you buy a wasting asset, ultimately it's speculation. You know, if it doesn't generate value, if it doesn't generate cash flows, then, you know, why does it exist? Is it solving a problem or isn't it? But this is when they go full Statler and Waldorf, I think. And it is kind of like listening to people from another time, which I like. So the quote which I think really sums up his worldview is when he says assets to have value have to deliver something to somebody. And there's only one currency that's accepted. You can come up with all kinds of things. We can put up Berkshire coins, put up Berkshire money. But in the end, this is money, he said, holding up a $20 bill. And there's no reason in the world why the United States government is going to let Berkshire money replace theirs. Yeah, though I'd use currency if it had Warren's face on it. <laughs> Probably not if it had Mungo's face on it. Warren would be the $20 bill. Mungo would be the $10, let's be honest. Actually, Laura's pretty keen on Charlie, I've got to say. Well, he's kind of like, they're like two grandpas, isn't he? Warren's like the cuddly, let's be honest, Democrat. And Charlie's like the sort of unfriendly, grumpy Republican. And they were a great double act. But, you know, it's interesting. They do have differences of opinions when you read between the lines. So Charlie's bugbear at the moment seems to be the push for diversity on company boards. And he kept saying that. And you could see Warren shifting in his chest slightly uncomfortably. <laughs> I drink more Coke Zero now. Yeah. I mean, it was interesting. There was a shareholder motion by some of the institutional shareholders to remove Warren Buffett as chairman of Berkshire Hathaway and just let him be CEO only because, you know, that's typically how things are structured these days for corporate governance reasons. But that was roundly defeated. And it would seem bizarre. Like if you're buying Berkshire Hathaway, the thing you're buying is Warren Buffett, really. I think the governance thing is, is interesting because I think it's wrong, actually, to have the chairman being the CEO as well. Because there is that level of oversight, which simply doesn't exist then. And, you know, that, that's a problem. The whole point of a board is that it's supposed to look after the interests of the shareholders. And if the CEO is somebody who's not managing the company right, then they do have an oversight to make sure that that's going to be policed. Yeah, but let's be honest. If there was a different chairman, 
there's no way he can fire Warren Buffett as CEO, right? So the government, it doesn't make a huge difference, really, does it? But they would. You know, I mean, that's the whole point, which is that they could fire Warren Buffett. No, the stock would crash if you fired Warren Buffett from Berkshire Hathaway. <laughs> it would go in half overnight. There must come a point. There must come a point where he just maybe does lose his marbles. You know, it could happen. He may not realise this himself, but, you know, that's the whole point of having the oversight. So I agree that it would be a problem in this case. But, you know, the same thing's true of Tesla. You know, having the chairman and the CEO as the same person is a problem. Didn't Musk have to resign as chairman? Yeah, so Musk had to step down in 2018 because of the tweets he made about taking the firm private. So that was the funding secured tweet. Good job Warren Buffett doesn't have a Twitter account then, isn't it? (laughs) (laughs) Somebody said that that's why he only was willing to pay $25 for for Bitcoin. For all the Bitcoin in the world. (laughs) For all the Bitcoin in the world, because he didn't know how to switch on a computer. Well, he said he wouldn't even pay $25 for it. Yeah, (laughs) that was a Parik Patel parody account, which I thought was great. And the other thing a lot of the questioning was about was inflation. And I thought Buffett probably won your heart when he described Jerome Powell as a hero who did what he had to do, defending the Federal Reserve. Yeah, I think he's right. You know, people, I mean, it's hard to remember during these panics, but when you see treasuries plummeting, when you see credit funds plummeting at the same time as the stock market and liquidity drying up in the treasury market, which is like the financial plumbing that makes everything work, it's not fully appreciated by everyone, but that's the case. You know, the repo market shuts down. Well, you know, that's terrifying. And and then the Fed stepped in and you can time exactly the time markets turned around in 2020 was when the Fed stepped in. So everyone likes to slam the Fed. Not you, Robin. <laughs> yes, I know, I know. We forget now that, you know, we were on the precipice in that sort of February, March 2020 time. And Buffett actually said, the Federal Reserve will do whatever is necessary. That's what happened in 2008 and 2009. That's what happened in 2020. And you'll hope that it happens again next time. He's obviously benefited massively from that because, you know, he's the one that got cash to deploy during these crises. And because of the fact that the Fed did step in, his investments during those crisis periods rallied a lot in value. So clearly he's got a vested interest in having someone like the Fed around, but so have all of us. We'd all be in a much worse situation if the Fed hadn't done what they'd done. So I think he's right. I think Powell's a hero. I'd wear a Powell t-shirt if I had one. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe you should sell them. (laughs) Yeah, I guess the Fed does help people like Warren Buffett get rich and stay rich. But then he's invested through all sorts of periods, periods of high inflation, periods where interest rates have been super high when they've been super low, and he's weathered all those storms. And what's really interesting is I think the key to success is that longevity. There's that wonderful um, point that Morgan Housel makes, which is that Warren Buffett made 90% of his wealth after the age of 65. And if he hadn't had a large sum to invest initially, he'd be a lot poorer today. So that was the other point he made, which is it's good to start with a lot and stay in the game for a long time and make reasonable returns. But that's the key thing. You don't bet the farm by taking too much risk. You just have to stay in the game for a long period of time and let compounding do its magic. And it's hard to think of anyone who's done that better, really, than Warren Buffett at 91 and still going strong. But that's why I'm so glad that he has been successful, because I think that teaches a really good lesson to any investor about how to invest successfully. Yeah, there's a lovely Charlie Munger quote, which I find heartening, which is basically saying, you know, you don't have to be super smart to do this. He says, a lot of people with high IQs are terrible investors because they've got terrible temperaments. And that is why we say that having a certain kind of temperament is far more important than brains. You need to keep raw, irrational emotion under control. 
You need patience and discipline and an ability to take losses and adversity without going crazy. You need an ability to not be driven crazy by extreme success. That's brilliant. If you want to learn more about fundamental investing and valuation, this is the kind of thing we cover a lot in PensionCraft in our community. If you want to learn more about that, come to our website, pensioncraft.com. Okay, today's dumb question of the week comes from Ching, who's a PensionCraft member, and he asks, how accurate is the forward PE metric, which we, you know, reference a lot on this show? Isn't this just based on a guess of what earnings will be? And the answer is yes. <laughs> That's exactly <laughs> right. what it is. <laughs> okay, so, so where does it come from, right? Where does the forward bit come from? Now, there are various ways to work out the price of an index or a company, but one way to do it is based on profit. So that's what earnings is. Earnings is profit. And you can either look at the projected forward future earnings, which nobody knows, but we can guess, or you can base it on historic earnings, which are in the past. But of course, equity is forward looking. That's what people always say. So if you want to factor in all the optimism, all the stuff about interest rate, everything, then you'd base everything on forward earnings. How do you work out forward earnings? Well, you ask lots of experts, in this case, brokers. These are usually investment banks. And you ask thousands of analysts to produce single stock estimates for what the earnings will be over the next 12 months, say. So that's the aggregated number that goes into it. And the actual company that produces that is called IBES, I-B-E-S, which stands for Institutional Brokers Estimate System. And you can buy a subscription for this and they'll give you the single stock numbers. But what I use it for is just looking at the forward price to earnings, which is usually produced in aggregate. Yeah, they call it analyst consensus earnings forecast or something like that, don't they? Yes, it's called consensus earnings, but it is just an average. That's all consensus means. And, you know, the analysts often get it wrong. They're often too optimistic. You know, that's a well-documented fact. You know, they just extend a trend that we've just seen over the past few years. There is a lot of recency bias in those estimates, and they tend to be very slow in downgrading them. So they're not great, but you have to take all of these different measures with an understanding of what they give you. So trailing will give you a comparison to you know, what's happened in recent history in terms of profits. Forward will give you what optimistic brokers <laughs> would place the valuation at. And that's usually cheaper because you're dividing by a bigger number. The estimate for forward earnings is always greater than historic, except in very dire circumstances. So forward earnings gives you a kind of optimistic valuation, trailing earnings, the kind of pessimistic backward looking one. And CAPE gives you a 10 year average. So CAPE is cyclically adjusted price to earnings ratio. Yeah, this is Robert Schiller's creation. And that looks over the last decade of profits which is a whole business cycle. This is a kind of bubble detector, if you like, because it's pretty good at picking out bubbles. So it's interesting when we talk about the forward earnings estimates, because like you said, there is a body of research which shows that they are positively biased. They often overestimate what the earnings will be. But then if you think about it, that wouldn't be a problem if it was always overestimated by, say, 10%. Because, you know, we're using this to say our stock's expensive or cheap. So if it's always overestimated by the same amount, that's fine. But the trouble is, there is quite a lot of research which shows that analysts are subject to the same biases as we are, and they actually overestimate far more in those kind of bubbly environments. But I was part of the culture, right? So I, I spoke to equity analysts on a daily basis, and you know they do get caught up in the kind of excitement and optimism during these periods of euphoria. I remember having a kind of fairly brisk exchange with someone who was covering tech stocks, 
saying that valuations looked unrealistic. And he was saying, oh, look, you're measuring it the wrong way. You should measure it relative to total addressable market or, or some other crazy measure. Yeah, that was ridiculous, that whole era of total addressable market. Like if everyone signs up to your service, that's your market. <laughs> <laughs> So, you know, I just think that, you know, everyone gets caught up in it, but that's why you have to understand where these numbers are coming from. Just to understand that forward earnings is based on brokers who get a little bit carried away when things are a bit bubbly. But that's why you have to use multiple measures. I think you have to look not just at forward PE, but trailing, CAPE, and as many different multiples as you can, like price to sales, for example, is another one, price to book, although that's a little bit out of date nowadays. The thing is, there can't be a perfect measure to say a stock's expensive or cheap. And, you know, is this a time to buy or sell? Because if there was, then it would be accessible to everyone and it would be immediately meaningless. Yeah. The market cannot be predictable by definition. And that's why equity is difficult to price, because the future cash flows are uncertain. You know, you don't know whether there's a new competitor that's going to come along and wipe out your company's future earnings. Or the CEO's created a massive fraud. Or the, or the numbers are just lied. You know, that's, that's another possibility which we've seen in the past. Yeah, well, there's a black swan event and a pandemic. Yeah. And then the Fed reacts, and it's a good thing for equity. Who would have guessed that? <laughs> so, so that's why I think there's a lot of uncertainty with equity. You know, the cash flows are uncertain. You'll have your own opinion. You come up with the fundamental price. And if that's different from the market, you know, Charlie and Warren, then they'll buy from Mr. Market. So if we look at where we are now and these different valuation measures, are there some which are saying stocks are expensive and some which are saying maybe not so expensive? So you can kind of cluster it into two groups of valuation measures, the ones which do take interest rates into account and the ones that don't. The ones that do actually show that the valuations aren't so crazy. It's roughly fair price, if not a little bit cheap. Whereas if you look at ones which don't include the interest rates, the effective interest rates, then they actually show that it's pretty expensive still in the US. But the other key thing, I think, is the kind of outlook, the kind of horizon over which these valuation measures work. So clearly, if the measure works, it'll tell you when equity is expensive or cheap, and it'll give you a rough idea of what the returns will be as a result. And there's a beautiful graph you've got, which shows over a one-year horizon, if equity is expensive or cheap, it tells you almost nothing about future return. Whereas if you look over a five-year period, there's a strong negative relationship. So if you look ahead over a five-year period, when equity is expensive, it gives you a lower return. And when equity is cheap, it gives you a higher return. That's what you'd expect, isn't it? But that's the minimum horizon. Anything less than that, and the relationship gets kind of shaky and doesn't work anymore. Yeah, and it doesn't tell you the path to that return. It could be a massive up and down or down and up, or it could just be steady growth each year. And the R-squared, which is the kind of statistical word for how good the fit is, is pretty fuzzy. I mean, it's only an R-squared of about 40%. You know, sometimes you buy equity when it's cheap and it doesn't rally, you know, over a five-year period. So it's not a perfect predictor by any means, but it only works over these five, 10-year horizons. So this is why I'm always going on about saying, look, if, if you're a long-term investor and equity markets sell off, don't panic. It's a good thing. Yeah. But the temptation is to keep looking for these valuation measures, which allow us to time the market. And really, they're just not there, is it? It's like in, I play guitar and everyone's looking for the, the hidden chord, the secret chord that doesn't exist. We really just play the 12-bar blues and it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> it's like that song, Hallelujah. Yeah, Leonard Cohen. You see, I do listen to popular music, Michael. Thank you for joining us for many happy returns. Remember to check out the new PensionCraft website at pensioncraft.com. 
If you're enjoying the podcast, it would be great if you could tell a friend or share it on social media so more people can learn about investing. Many Happy Returns is a Pension Craft production, co-hosted and executive produced by Romin Nakiza and Michael Pugh. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes and is not financial advice. We do not provide recommendations or endorse any decision to buy, sell or hold any security. We cannot be held responsible for any actions listeners may take and investors are encouraged to seek independent financial advice. 